Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. The biggest inhibitor to growing wealth is taxes. That's why the best investing opportunity over the past few years is opportunity zones where you can defer capital gains and avoid depreciation recapture plus other great benefits. Ashley Tyson, founder and president of ozpros.com, is an expert in structuring opportunity zone opportunities for entrepreneurs to make great opportunity zone investments or create opportunity zone funds in underserved areas all over the country. So today, you know, I've been having this offline conversation. Gosh, we've been talking for at least 15 minutes. We've just hit it off so well. Very interesting guy. Very interesting segments of the market. Uh, never had anybody on the show that specializes in opportunity zones. Uh, he is the founder and president of ozpros.com. He's an opportunity zone professional attorney, speaker, and also I want to ask about Division One athlete. He is Ashley Tyson. Ashley, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate you having me on. Look forward to chatting today. You got it. Did I pronounce your last name right? Yeah, you did. A lot of people, so it's funny is that it originally is French and it was pronounced Tisson, which means firebrand. So a lot of people do pronounce it as Tisson. But uh, yeah, it's it's Tyson. Unfortunately, it's not spelled with a Y. And uh, I'm lineage of the chicken family because uh, I probably wouldn't be slogging it out as a lawyer if I was. That could be true. Or I was thinking Mike Tyson, uh, but you, you don't really look like Mike Tyson. Yeah, for, one thing, yeah, for one thing, you have teeth. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm also six eight, and I think that Mike's like uh, like five ten. Gosh, uh, yeah, you're six eight. Son I'm of six, a eight. Yep. So you can't really tell that sitting down, but um, it's funny. So my dad is actually seven feet. So he, well, he was seven feet. He's uh, I actually look maybe a little bit taller than him now, but uh, I I like to kid around that uh, that he robbed me of you know, four inches of height and two all American statuses of basketball talent. He, uh, he, he was, a uh, on the first final four team for Duke back in the sixties. So I followed in his footsteps and ultimately, you know, played basketball at the air force Academy and then transferred to play for a college roommate of his Jeff Mullins, which actually is how I got to Charlotte. That is really interesting. My goodness. So, so did he, uh, did he ever play pro ball? He got drafted by the Celtics, but he was making twice as much money uh, working for IBM. So he said, you know what? I don't feel like being a, a practice meet uh, for the, you know, the big guys of the Celtics at the time. So he ended up coming, you know, just staying down in North Carolina working for IBM. You know, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you remember Bill Lambeer, it, who was a center for the Detroit Pistons. Oh, yeah. I've, I, my, my, I've crafted my basketball game after him. <laughs> there, well, there you go. At that time, he was the only NBA player in the league, and this was like 80s, 80s, uh, whose dad made more money than he did. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, that, that's fantastic. I, I like to kid around with my dad. Now I'm like, dad, man, you should have gone. And even if you did have to just suck it up in practice, you know, for three years, you would have gotten the pension. And the pension's the league minimum now, you know, so you'd be making another, I don't know, I think it's like 350,000 bucks. So, oh, well, 
Oh, well. So, so after Air Force, you said, what did you say you did as it pertains to basketball? Yeah. So I played for UNC Charlotte, which is oh. a, uh, it's a local division of the North Carolina campuses here in Charlotte. And, uh, we were actually really good. We were in Conference USA. We played Cincinnati and Louisville and, uh, you know, a bunch of other teams like that. And, uh, and then I did a, I played a summer for a team in Germany. And, uh, their idea of a living and my idea of a living were two entirely different things. So I came back and I went to law school at Chapel Hill and, uh, then got out and started practicing law. I see. Okay. So what position did you play, by the way? So I was a power forward. So I was, uh, I was 215 when I transferred from Air Force to UNC Charlotte and I put on 55 pounds between my sophomore and junior year. So when I was playing, I was around 270. And so I was five fouls at the end of the bench and uh, the team GPA booster. I see. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody needed to be fouled, they sent me in and we had this code worked out that said, uh, hey, get in the game, you're guarding that guy. And that meant that I was supposed to put my, you know, my special brand of uh, you know, of playing and it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It was just the way that I was. I was just really physical and I would just put a hurting on them. I see. That is funny. I, I hope it wasn't any like Kevin McHale clothesline stuff. No, I didn't do anything like blatantly cheap like that. You know, I had, uh, I had some dirty old man moves that I learned from my dad, you know, but you know, nothing that was out. I, I never had any flagrant fouls like that. Thankfully. I see. Just I'm still people's heads. I'm still trying to get over the fact your dad was a seven footer because how rare that is. Um, I was at an airport, well, the Oakland airport probably was time goes by so fast, was probably seven, maybe even eight years ago with my two sons and my one son was and still is an absolute basketball fanatic. We're out here. So we're, we're Warriors fans, but we ran into, uh, the backup center at the time, whose name is Festus Azili, uh, who's from an Africa somewhere. And he ended up in Northern California, living with his uncle, who was a doctor up in Napa Valley. Too much detail, but the point is we saw him at the airport and we went up and started talking to him. He is 6'11", and I felt like I was like talking to the Empire State Building. Yep. So uh, it's just so tall. But anyway, so then you were an attorney, and so now you specialize in opportunity zones. And I'm going to start out with one of, I'm sure, several dumb questions I'm going to ask, which is... What is an Opportunity Zone? So Opportunity Zones were created by the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. And it was originally a uh, a Clinton-era program that they tried to put through to encourage private investment into historically underinvested areas. So, you know, census tracts that had, you know, know, below median income or uh, depressed real estate, that kind of thing, they wanted to incentivize private capital to go into those areas and make investments. And so they revised the legislation, they pushed it through. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina was one of the authors of it with uh, Senator Booker from New Jersey. And the deal that they cut to get it through was, okay, listen, knock the guardrails off this thing and we can actually make this happen. And so it was three pages of legislation in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And in those three pages of legislation, number one, they got the attention of private capital. Number two, they got private capital off the sidelines. And then number three, they got it to be patient. 
And the way they did that is that if you had any kind of capital gains, long-term or short-term, if you invest that capital gain into a qualified opportunity fund within 180 days, that and then that fund invests into these opportunity zones, either in real estate or in operating businesses, then you get to defer that capital gain until 2026. And then whatever your new investment is, if you hold on to that for 10 years, you get a complete removal of capital gains after the 10 years via step up and basis to fair market value. What that also does is it also eliminates depreciation recapture. So it it got the, I mean, not that it, it not only got the attention of private capital, it got a massive influx. And so, you know, we've seen, and there's different estimates out there between a hundred, you know, some some on the low side are like fifty billion, some on the high side are like two hundred to two hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of private capital that's gone into different deals, you know, in opportunity zones. But it's uh it's probably the greatest tax incentive that the legislator has ever passed for private individuals that is actually like relatively easy to take advantage of. And, and so, and you don't have the recaptured depreciation at, at the end of it. That's right. So wow. theoretically, you could take your capital gain, you can sell your Apple stock, or well, not anymore, right? Well, I was going to say crypto assets, but <laughs> everything's gotten eviscerated with the market. But you could take that highly appreciated Mickey Mantle, you know, first series baseball card, sell it, take the million dollars worth of capital gain from that, invest it into a real estate deal or an operating business, right? Lever it up. So, you know, build up like a $5 million asset and then depreciate that through a bonus depreciation, you know, strategy called cost segregation. Utilize that cost segregation to offset your income, collect the income. You know, generally it's, you know, going to be a 40 to 45% of your project cost, right? And if it's levered up, more than likely you're probably going to get at least five to maybe seven years of completely tax-free income off of that deal. And then when you sell it after 10 years, you're not going to pay any depreciation recapture or capital gains on the growth between now and then. Wow. Unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, uh, I'm kind of blown away. I did not know that. You can't write off uh, your regular income, can you? You can use the depreciation to offset against the income inside of the definitely inside of the deal, right? So if you got an apartment complex and you're making money off of the apartment rent, you could offset it against that. If you're active in the trade or business and you're a real estate professional, you could take that depreciation and then use it to offset other income as well. Or we've also got uh, you know, a, a gentleman that puts together solar packages for us and you can make an investment into a solar deal in an opportunity zone. And he's got it set up so that you actually become active in the management of that solar business. And you can offset that against ordinary income too. So you could defer your capital gains, stick it into a fund, buy solar panels in an opportunity zone with it, manage that actively, and then take all the depreciation and the investment tax credits and write it off against your W-2 income. That is fantastic. How, what kind of business, what would be an example of a business that you would invest in? And are these businesses that are already existing or are these, you start up a business in and out? Both and. You could do either one. And so I, I regularly talk, I'm like, man, if you're starting a business and you don't do it in an opportunity zone, you're crazy. Right. And we do that. We have those strategy calls all the time where I'm like, all right, 
Let's generate you a capital gain. Let's use seed money from that to start your business. And then if you sell this thing after 10 years, you're not going to pay any capital gains on the growth from now until then. And so we also use it as a 1202 hedge. I don't know if you're familiar with the qualified small business stock exemption that's available for investments into privately held companies. But you get a similar arrangement there, except that it's capped at either 10x or $10 million. And so this becomes an additional hedge for anything that's growth over and above that. So it could be an existing business that you buy and you move the assets into an opportunity zone. It could be a startup business. It could be uh, additional capital that you're providing to like where you're buying a minority interest in an existing company. It's basically anything that's not location specific where you can move it into a zone, right? We could be like, all right, we're going to just, we're going to have an opportunity zone presence. We're basically going to function out of that zone. That's any business that you could do would be eligible to be, you know, to be put in an opportunity zone with the caveat of like a stock trading company or like a, like a crypto mining exclusive company or a, uh, like an insurance company that's got a ton of, uh, you know, collateral requirements that you have to keep on the books. If it, if it requires a high amount of cash, that becomes a little bit of a difficult thing, right? So you wouldn't be able to do a bank because you have to have all this cash reserves. So, but pretty much anything else, we can make it an opportunity zone business. In terms of like the the uh, amount of opportunity based on the amount of, and I'll just put it in simple terms, the amount of acreage on a national basis that is that is constitutes, and if we just hit the the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what the opportunity is, yeah. So uh, it's according to census tracts. So the governor's got to designate twenty five percent of their low income census tracts as opportunity zones. So in higher, uh, you know, population density areas, they're going to be smaller, right? Because you have more people in that area. And so they're going to condense that area. Out West, you know, the, the tracks are huge because the population is much less dense. And so from a, uh, from an acreage standpoint, the swaths of land are mind blowing how big they are, particularly as you proceed kind of towards the Western part of the country or up into Alaska. Also, the, the entire island of Puerto Rico is an opportunity zone. And so, you know, there's, there's a ton of land that's still available and that's still able to have deals done. And so we're excited about, you know, continuing on with this. I mean, it's, it's been a run. It's been a fantastic run thus far, you know, during the three years that it's four years now that it's been out. But, um, we're, we're excited about some pending legislation. That's out there that could extend the program and that people are finally kind of getting their hands around it. And they're like, okay, this thing's not going away. It's not a fad. This is actually legit, you know, tax strategy that was legislatively created. And so I'm not worried about, you know, the IRS basically coming out with a private letter ruling that knocks it down. Well, it sounds like it also has bipartisan origins and bipartisan. It also seems like it's congruent with bipartisan agendas. Exactly right. And, you know, so the, the way that it became partisan, right? And unfortunately, this is what our country came to when Trump was in office is that it like, it, it, it just became unbelievably polarizing. And I'm not pointing fingers about who caused that in one way, shape or the other, right? But Trump was very good at, you know, 
uh, identifying something and then effectively being able to say, all right, and to position it relative to taking credit for it. And so he was part and parcel to getting this thing through. And so he was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to make sure that we really focus on that. And then I'm also going to allocate a ton of resources to it as well. And so as a result, I think that there was a lot of pushback from the left in response to that because he highlighted how he was involved in it. And I mean, this wasn't a Trump program. He just was like, hey, listen, all right, it's a good program that's out there. And just because he was involved with it, then the left was like, oh, well, there's got to be, you know, a pathway for the rich to get richer. Yeah. And sure, there's people that are going to take advantage of it, right? Just like anything else that's out there. But as a lion's share, man, you know, there's story after story after story about how this thing is doing good in these areas that have not had a lot of good done to them over the course of history. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Are there asset classes that are, for example, is is a lot of the development in housing or or is it across the board? You know, it's kind of across the board, but I think that, you know, that recently the lion's share of development that's been happening right? And particularly kind of new developments and that are positioned well to be able to take advantage of kind of federal incentive programs has historically been multifamily, right? And so I think that that's been a lot of the projects that have been done to date, namely because there was a housing shortage, there was a need for it. You know, the the engine had gotten going relative to, you know, pumping out this multifamily stuff. And so the multifamily developers are like, wow, we can, you know, now do these in opportunity zones and man, we can, you know, this can be a great deal. So I think that yes, that probably a majority of it is, but I've also seen tons of mixed use deals, tons of hospitality deals. And I'd say that, you know, between myself and Blake Christian, we probably have done more operating businesses than anybody else in the country. And we've seen a ton of operating businesses that are utilized in this program in order to be able to attract opportunity fund capital. And then also as a distinguisher relative to kind of being a startup and being in a business that's out there. And then, you know, the big pieces is that, you know, if you are an opportunity zone business and you do it correctly, you're not going to pay any taxes on the growth of it for the next 10 years. And so, you know, why would you not want to do that? Yeah. If, you're, if you could. <laughs> exactly. In the multifamily segment, what percentage of, of the projects would you say are multifamily if you could define it? Yeah, you know, that's really tough. I And I have no idea. I haven't seen any kind of reports or anything. I'm sure that Novogratic might have that information or EIG. And um, I should probably put my hands on it to be able to kind of tell, but I, I don't know. Um, it, it, I, I just know that there's a lot of them, namely because of what I talked about earlier that, uh, you know, that they just had the wheels in motion. And so 
you know, an object in motion tends to stay in motion. And so they were able to pivot into the opportunity zones a lot easier just because they were already doing deals just like this. They just needed to shift them into a different area. Right. Um, and then, and then do you have a sense of in the multifamily space and opportunity zones? Was the bulk of it like new development or was it repositioning of existing assets? So inside of the multifamily space, in the opportunity zone world, it's probably going to be ground up development because it's tough to reposition a substantial asset. So, and this getting is getting into some of the nuances of it, but you've got to, in order for property to be eligible, it either has to be original use or substantially improved. And so original use means that it was built from the ground up, like uh, on greenfields, or that it was abandoned for three years, or it was a municipal foreclosure, right? And you can get original use qualification for that. If it's not original use, you have to substantially improve it, mean, which means that you have to double the basis of the value of the buildings. So if you buy a million dollar property and it's got a $500,000 building on it, you're going to have to put another $501,000 into it. And so it becomes t- you know, tricky unless you're buying a complete dog. Right. That's in a great area to do a value add play on multifamily because the value of the buildings is significant. Even if they're really crappy, it's usually really expensive. And so it would be really expensive to do doubling the value of those buildings and still make them pencil out from a performance standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder even, even without that dynamic, I don't know. I think about it, but. I wonder if it's less risk anyway, you know, to do ground up in an opportunity zone. Well, it's just, I mean, it's easier to track and it's easier to kind of compute. I mean, one of the things that we have seen a lot of value add kind of in the multifamily space is mobile home parks. So people are buying mobile home parks, existing ones, particularly ones that have a little bit of space where you could add some units or where they could bring in new units. And then that'll count towards a substantial improvement test. And so we've seen a bunch of activity in the mobile home park space. And are those uh, in mobile home parks, are those like big institutional operators? I don't even know if there are any. I'm sure there is a couple. Or these more of your smaller syndicator guys, you know, rolling up, you know, rolling up properties. Well, it's funny because, you know, so it's all relative, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, small in the, you know, the institutional space could be, you know, like a 2000 lots, which in my book is really big, right? That's a big syndicator. And, um, you know, there's a group called Saratoga Capital that, um, that they, I think that they've got close to 2000 pads now at this point in time. And there's some other players that are doing it. But the great thing about this program is that, you know, is that Main Street level people can take advantage of it, right? And it's not about how much gain you have existing. It's about what you anticipate your gain to be in the future. And if you factor in kind of the cost, like a typical cost of this, if you're going to have more than one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 worth of gain, it's going to make sense from a tax savings standpoint to invest the time and energy and expenses in doing the client stuff for an opportunity zone deal. And so, you know, when you look at that, right, more than likely over 10 years, you know, your value is going to double. So if you back that out, right, and you're thinking, okay, if I've got $200,000 worth of gain, it makes sense. So if I start with a $100,000 deal, right, because I'm expecting it to double, then I'm going to have $200,000 worth of gain. 
And so, I mean, it's, it gets, the numbers get really small as to where it really makes sense, which is what we, our passion is, is getting this into the hands of main street level entrepreneurs that are the backbone of the American economy so that they too can, you know, participate in the tax savings that the rich and the, you know, the educated, you know, avail themselves of every day. On that level, are you dealing mostly with syndicators or are you dealing with, uh, you know, just high net individuals, uh, you know, investors? So it's funny is that I would say that it's not necessarily even, you know, high net worthers. It's people that have uh, a, a substantial capital gain that's coming down the pike or that they already had that are like, man, I'm not going to give this to the government. You mean that I can? So, you know, they built a, uh, a mini storage center and they're going to take $300,000 off of it. Or they, you know, their primary residence appreciated more than 500 grand. And they're like, listen, I can either give it to the government and write them a check, or I can invest in my next deal. And then I don't have to write a check to the government until 2026. So I basically get an interest-free loan for the government. And then on my new investment, I'm not going to pay any capital gains taxes on that. Wow. This is a no brainer. And so. I would say that the lion's share of people that we deal with are kind of in that. Um, I'd say by by standards, they're wealthy. They're not, you know, high net worthers or ultra high net worthers. And we definitely deal with some of those. But I'd say that the lion's share of our clients are, you know, they're kind of the middle America, middle income people that just have happened to do well on like one or two hits, where they're getting ready to have to write a big check to Uncle Sam, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't want to do that." So you can you can uh, do a ten thirty one. Looks you have one hundred and eighty days. Sounds like to put it into an opportunity zone. You also have one hundred and eighty days. Is the reason that they would opt to do opportunity zone because you don't have the depreciation recapture? Because otherwise, it seems like it's apples to apples. It's a gloomy and yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not apples to apples by any stretch of the imagination because ten thirty one is just a tax deferral, right? And so you get to defer the taxes. And there's, there's benefit associated with that, right? So I had a call with a guy today from California and um, he was like, all right, well, if I 1031, then I get to not pay the state taxes because California is exempted out of the program. And there is value to that. And so if you've already got your opportunity zone fund done, right, where you put some money into it, then we've made some analysis relative to the Delta, right? They're like, okay, we can maybe 1031 some of that. But if you don't have an opportunity zone funded, you have to start with capital gains. And when you put that capital gains into your fund, you are growing that money ultimately tax-free. And it's also not going to count against your lifetime exemption amount and against your estate, or at least the only amount that will is the original amount that you put in. So if you were to take a million dollars and you were to 1031 that, right? And it was to grow basically, I don't know, let's say that it, uh, that it, doubles or you could use $5 million, whatever. 5 million bucks, it's going to double in 10 years, right? Well, now we're talking about a $10 million asset at the end, okay? And if you 1031 that, that's going to suck up all of your lifetime exemption after 2026, right? And most people don't understand that, that, hey, even though I've deferred this and I get to step up in basis uh, at death, I have to take the step up in basis at death at whatever the then fair market value is. And if I'm north of the lifetime exemption amount, which is going to be probably $10 million after 2026, then, and it may go lower than that, 
then I'm going to have a real problem because I'm going to have to write a check to the government for 40% of whatever that amount is over the 10 million. The great thing about opportunity zones is, is that it's the original amount. So in that same example, it would only be $5 million that would go against your lifetime estate, right? And whatever the growth is comes to your estate tax-free. And so that tax-free component of this is what's so powerful inside of the Opportunity Zone program, coupled up with the fact that um, this also applies for operating businesses, right? And so you can invest into an operating business, not just real estate. It's other, and we regularly use Opportunity Zone funds to salvage 1031s that have gone bad. So somebody misses their identification window or somebody fails to close. We're usually able to grab the money from that transaction, from that gain, put it into an opportunity fund and still defer the taxes until 2026 and then get them set up to where their new investment's now going to be tax-free. What would you say is the average amount of people coming out of a 1031 in terms of your client base uh, that, that gets placed into uh, the next investment in an opportunity zone? Um, you know, it might be like 20%, right? Most people are doing this as an alternative. Sometimes it's coming out of a 1031, but if they've already done a 1031 or if they're already kind of used to that, a lot of times they'll just continue to kind of kick that can down the road. And it's not until they get on a call with me and I kind of point out to them and we ask some really in-depth questions about, okay, what are your real goals here? What are you trying to accomplish? That they're like, oh, wow, I never really thought about that. And it kind of takes them out of their, um, it gets them out of that, you know, that rote habit of, oh, I'm just going to 1031 this. I'm just going to 1031 it or whatever. And instead it gets them really critically thinking about, okay, what's my ultimate end goal as opposed to what's my natural just kind of, uh, of preclusion, right? Like what's my natural predisposition towards? I see. What what would you say are the risks in, in this kind of investing? Is it the same as anything else? That the property doesn't do particularly well for whatever reason, just like anything else? Yeah, you absolutely have that risk. Um, you know, and there's obviously other risks too, right? Because you got to do this right. So the great thing about opportunity zones, you don't have to ask permission from anybody, but you do have to be able to prove your case. So you're going to need to make sure that you get it done correctly and that you've got a good team that's helping you navigate the specific nuances of it. And so that's what we do literally all day long, every day, is we help people navigate through their decisions, right? And what they're doing relative to how they're structuring their stuff. And then ultimately, you know, how they're reporting that and how they're keeping track of it and on an annual basis. And, and how do people find out about you when they're, when they're kind of thinking about this vehicle? So our website's ozpros.com and we've got tons of information on our website about, uh, with videos and that kind of thing. We've also released a ton of YouTube videos. So if you search opportunity zones and OZ pros, that's those videos are going to pop up and we've got videos on all kinds of different topics, right? And the nuances relative to this. And then, We've, we've got an educational product that we sell. We've, uh, we've got a, uh, a online community called the Ozworks group and that's at ozworksgroup.com. People can join that community and we've got our educational product contained inside of that that they can, you know, take down at their leisure and at their pace. And then we've also got a network of folks in there that are kind of similarly situated that are doing opportunity zones deals. And so it's a, just a place to be able to trade best practices and that kind of thing. 
So it's kind and, of a community. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a community of folks that uh, that are learning about it. And then, you know, the probably the easiest and quickest way, and this has actually become like one of our lines of business, is to set a strategy call with us. Um, and so originally we started this thing out to be the legal zoom for opportunity zones. Ah. And, um, and so we had all the, the documentation. I had a software system that generated these documents and it did it automatically, but people didn't know the specific things about how they needed to, the nuances about how they needed to enter the information into the documents. And so we said, all right, let's do a strategy call. So that way we can walk people through it. And people started buying the strategy call. They had no inclination about using our documents or anything like that. They just wanted the information. And it was the fastest and easiest way to figure out if their opportunity zone deal was going to work. And so that's literally become a staple for us is these strategy calls. And then the great thing about it is, is that there's no pressure one way or another, right? So you buy a half hour or an hour worth of our time. We walk you through and we answer your questions. We plug you in with the right experts and the people and the things that you need. And there's no obligation to buy anything further from us. If you want to, obviously, we'd love it if you did. But it's a really fast and easy way to figure out if Opportunity Zones are going to be something that's going to work for you. So, um, so Ashley... We've already covered this ground, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, is, is your typical client, they, they call it an, you know, an avatar is the overused word these days. A guy, so for example, a, cu- a couple years ago, I sold the duplex I lived in in San Francisco and I had owned it for 30 years. Yeah, I know what you're thinking that I only look like I'm 35. Um, but, but no, I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, did you start when you were 10? <laughs> I owned this thing 30 years. It had, it had a lot, a lot, a lot of equity, more than I could have ever dreamed. And so, you know, and and I, I ended up doing what I ended up doing. I didn't invest in an opportunity zone because I didn't even know that they existed. So am I your typical client then? Is, is that the avatar or a guy that has three units or, you know, kind of like, and then winds up, you know, next thing you know, the guy's got 2 million bucks to put into play instead of getting whacked by the government? Absolutely. So it's somebody that's either got a, uh, a real estate capital gain like that, or they've got, they're, they're anticipating the sale of a business or they've actually sold their business and, and, or, right. So it's either real estate, uh, businesses or crypto assets. And so we did a ton of stuff for people that had crypto when the, you know, when the run up had happened, people were taking chips off the table and we were helping them deal with the tax consequences of that. And the great thing about the Opportunity Zone program is that we can usually deal with your situation after you've had the sale. So if you're gonna if you're gonna exchange it, you're gonna do uh, some other tax planning strategies like deferred sales trust or whatever. You got to do that beforehand. But if you don't do that, and then you're looking at right, you call your accountant and you have to pick yourself up off the floor because he tells you what your anticipated tax bill is. Call us, and we can usually put a big dent in that. And the great thing about opportunity zones and the great thing about what happens is, is that you're ultimately still going to pay the taxes, right? If this legislation that's pending goes through, that'll give us another two years. And so you may pay a little bit less in taxes because we'll get back that five-year and seven-year step up in basis, but it gives us time, right? And time is our ally 
both in the context of getting a return off of the government's money, but then also on coming up with other strategies relative to how we can mitigate those taxes before they're due in 2026, which we've got a whole host of those in our tool belt. Got it. And, and then, so a guy like me, does he end up, uh, going, okay, well, cause I, I suspect, well, like you said, it's 20, the governor has to allocate 25%. So does a guy like me then who I live a tunnel away from Oakland, California, go find, uh, uh, something to develop in Oakland or do I invest in a syndication or what, you know, what do I end up doing? Either one, both and. Right. So that's the beauty of what our program does is that we can guide you through the process. We can educate you about it. And then based upon kind of what your comfortability is, you can say, ah, wait, that's way too more complicated for me. I don't want to deal with the compliance stuff. And so we can introduce you to a bunch of funds according to kind of what you're interested in. And then you could just make an investment with them. And then you're going to get a K1, you're going to get checks, and then you're going to ultimately get a big check that's tax-free after 10 years. Or we've got some people that are like, hey, listen, I want to look at all of my options. So we set them up a fund and a fund is just an LLC tax as a partnership. We do the unnecessary paperwork to make it a fund, but then they drop their money into their own account and then they've got you know upwards of almost three years that they can take in order to really figure out what it is that they're going to do. And so... We do a lot of those. And then they come back to me and they're like, hey, listen, I found one deal, but I can't find any others. So send me those other funds that are doing this stuff, right? So that I could potentially invest into them. And so then they do a hybrid where they do some in their own fund and then they do some in funds that are managed by others. And do you guys manage any, do you guys operate any funds yourself or are you guys just the the middleman between your client and just other funds that you could place into? You know, so as we saw all of these other people doing it, we're like, man, we don't want to be left out, right? So we we want to seat at the cool kids table. (laughs) So of course we had to roll out our own fund. And um, when we initially did it, we were thinking that we were going to basically be a lead investor. And, uh, and so that was our first fund and we made two lead investments into these projects that, uh, that we really liked. One of those is, a uh, an RV park, uh, roll up and development type deal. And we've got some waterfront property down in Beautiful, South Carolina. And then we're expanding that concept kind of across the country. And then the second one is that we made a lead investment into a, uh, a hotel developer and operator in Puerto Rico. And so we've got, you know, 10 hotel deals down there in Puerto Rico that we're actively working on right now. And so as we jumped in there, part of our deal was is that we helped those folks kind of put together their, you know, their processes and that kind of thing. And, you know, so we've been really diving into making that happen and have been getting some great results as a result. And so we're now just at the point where we're probably like, all right, it's time for kind of the next iteration of our fund, whatever that looks like. And so we're bouncing that around right now. So stay tuned because we got some tricks up our sleeve about how we're going to take over the opportunities on world. Got it. Okay. Well, you know, you, I, I was asking earlier, you know, how do you market it? And it sounds like you've got some fantastic ways and, and some lead capture vehicles. How would one uh, get a hold of, of you directly if you were so inclined to entertain uh, a conversation or an email exchange or whatever the heck it is? Yeah, absolutely. So my email is ashley at ozpros.com. The like, 
pretty much this. I've got a scheduling team that handles all my scheduling. And so the best thing is to do is to go to the website to try and, you know, get something scheduled. But if somebody's, you know, wants to get a hold of me directly and jump on a strategy call with me specifically as opposed to my team, they can send me an email at ashleydozypros.com and we'll get that set up. I'm pretty sure that we've also got special offer relative to you and to your podcast. And so we will get that set up with a URL and a landing page that'll be ozpros.com slash your podcast. Uh, Ashley, been a fantastic conversation. I very, very much appreciate it into being in uh, further dialogue with you. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll go ahead and create that landing page right now. It'll be ozpros.com slash street smart success. And so head over there and we got some special offers, discounts on the strategy calls, discounts on all of our programs, and um, and maybe a couple of different uh, stuff that's not available to the general public relative to, to some information. Got it. If somebody can beat you on, in basketball on one-on-one, let's say just the game to five, do they just get everything for free? Yeah, <laughs> I wish that I could still do that, but um, you know, I haven't played basketball in so long, just namely because of uh, like back issues. And you know, the last time I played, I mean, I sprained my ankle because my mind remembered what my body can't do. <laughs> I see your your body couldn't cash the check. Man. It could not cash those checks. Wow. All righty, uh, then that's not an offer then. <laughs> nah, not at all, but. And we could probably work out some other kind of wager. Okay. All right. Well, it was good talking to you. Yeah, you as well, Roger. Appreciate uh, having me on the show and look forward to talking to any of your clients and your customers, your listeners that uh, that are out there and helping them kind of navigate their opportunity zone journey, see if it's right for them. You got it. (laughs) 